0: Selah I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you gave the you forgave the iniquity of my sin Selah Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him You are a hiding place for me you preserve me from trouble You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart.
1: Let's pray. Lord, I humbly ask that you would calm our hearts. Help us take all the busyness that we brought in with us and pause it. Lord, just for a moment that we can hear from you. Or that your word would refresh our souls. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, good morning. Hey, uh, my name is Marshall Gallagher. Uh, like Andy said, I'm a church planting resident here. Uh, Going to be planting the Branch Church in East Nashville. Uh, looking to uh, start public services in January. Um, and I've been here for like nine months, going to be here for a little while longer, but I'm excited to be here right now this morning uh, to bring you guys Psalm 32 as we kind of continue in this process going through some of the Psalms. Um, and so uh, a little story, many of you, uh, and I'm even hesitant to bring this up because there's a lot of smart, very Christian historical minds in the room, but many of you know this character. I think we'll all know uh, this guy about 500 years ago. Uh, in a town in Germany. Uh, He was writing really an academic paper in response to some of the practices in the Catholic Church that had to do with uh, our assurance and justification before God. Um, He wrote 95 statements or theses, and and of course that man's name is Martin Luther. Um, And what he did changed probably the shape of Christianity, the trajectory of it, um, to what it is known today, uh, uh, the Protestant Reformation, um, but just a huge, huge pivotal moment in Christian history. Um, and you all know this. But his first, very first theses, thesis he wrote was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. I think most of us would would think, okay, well, what is repentance? Well, yeah, it's, it's turning away from sin, turning to God, uh, and that would be right and correct, and you would get an A plus. Uh, that that's definitionally right. But I think when it comes to repentance, often we only think about it in kind of a theoretical way, or it's very easy to think about it in a theoretical way. Well, it's turning from your sin and turning to God. But what does that look like? I mean, could you describe that process the last time you did it to someone who, who has no background in church or, or theology or anything like that? What, what really, practically, day-to-day, does repentance look like? Uh, and this is why I love the Psalms. It doesn't just teach theology out here, but it lets us feel it. And so Psalm 32 is David walking through repentance. It would almost be a case study for us. Uh, that first word, if you look at your Bibles that first word, it says, a maskil. I mean I'm probably butchering the, the phrase there, but uh, it means kind of a contemplative poem. And so David is thinking of himself, hoping that readers like us would look at his reflection and, and come to an understanding or, or figure out what he's trying to get across by his own reflection. So this is David walking through repentance, and, and I kind of summarized it uh, in, in this slide. If, if David was trying to get something across, here, here's what I think he's trying to tell us. We need to trust God with our sin if we want to enjoy his grace. Let me say it again. We we need to trust God with our sin if we want to enjoy his grace. So David starts out the psalm with a summary. He said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now he uses three Hebrew words. So he's he's referencing grace, right? Blessed is the one. A lot of Psalms start out like this. He's referencing grace, but he's talking about is a lack of sin and its penalty on him. And so he uses three different ways to describe it: transgression. Uh, he says uh, it's it's kind of something we might do against someone, uh, either rebellion or disloyalty toward God, uh, worshiping something else, pursuing something else that would uh, draw us away from God, something we're looking that we ought to look for God to, but we, we turn away from it. It's, it's being disloyal. He uses a totally different Hebrew word when he says whose sin is covered. Um, and so that would be Basically, it's used very, very common. You may have heard it before. It's, it's missing the mark. So not hitting where, where you ought. And so I have a, a little exercise for the kids in the room. Kids, you looking at me? You want to be able to yell out in church while Jamie's out of town? Okay. Yeah. All right. So kids, you can stand up if you can't see me. But I have a, they're going to teach us some simple doctrine here. Okay. And I'm going to ask you guys a yes or no question. So just say yes or no. All right, you ready? All Kids, we ready? All right, and just yell it out right when you know, okay? Am I perfect? Good, good, good. Are you perfect? (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) Okay, is anybody in the room perfect? Okay, I got one more question for you guys. It's not a yes or no question, but I think you're going to, you have some good teachers back there. I'm really confident that you'll know the answer. Who is perfect? All right. Our kids know some doctrine right there. And and if you're somebody, I don't like doctrine. Well, that's it. It's just belief. And they nailed it. God is perfect. We are not. It's a a basic understanding. If God weren't perfect, he would not be worth giving all of ourselves to, putting all our trust in. But since God is perfect... He, he is so perfect, he cannot allow imperfection before him. Imperfection does not stand in his presence. That is the mark to be with God, in communion with God. That is the line, that is the standard. And whether it's intentional or unintentional, we don't measure up to that standard. And so, if, if you guys are hearing me right, you should go, oh, no. That that is the natural response to how do I, as an imperfect creation, dwell and commune with an imperfect God? If if I don't perfectly match His will and perfectly live up to who He is, that's sin. That is the the general concept of sin. Uh, David goes on and he says he talks about iniquity. And iniquity is when you know something's wrong, you just do it anyway. That that would be what a lot of us think about of sin, is doing something morally wrong against someone else. And so so he uses those three pieces to kind of talk about the, the different facets of sin. Um, and I know that we have said sin so many times that I am sure someone in here is getting a little tired of it, right? Like, it, it just, I, I know that this happens. I was talking with my wife, Wesley, that I think sin is probably one of the least taught, least well-known things, beliefs in the church. Um, and I, I don't mean people hurting you with it and people being jerks, so don't, don't think I'm suggesting that. But just the belief of sin, of, of what it means Um, So I think a lot of it, and there's a lot of, even churches that build their ministries off of, we're not going to talk about it. You know what? You want grace. We're not going to talk about sin. We're going to give you plenty of grace. There are books that sell millions of copies off the idea not talking about sin. And so one, you have to avoid much of the Bible to actually believe that. There's over 700 verses just with the English term for sin in the Bible and there's only about 100 or so that talk about grace. And so that doesn't mean that God is more concerned with sin than grace. It doesn't not mean that. But I think when we go through the process of, you know what, I, don't, I just don't like talking about sin. I don't, it, it bugs me. Why do people have to always talk about it? That's what the wrong, what's wrong with Christians these days. They're always talking about sin, always talking about sin. What about Grace it reveals that you may not understand grace if you just don't want to talk about sin. You're you're actually saying, I I don't want an integral piece of the gospel in my understanding. Now, if I said, I don't want to hear about heaven, I don't want to hear about Jesus fixing everything, I just don't want to hear about that, It's, it's in the future, I can't picture, I don't want to hear about it, don't talk to me about it you all would be like, well, what do you mean? That's, that's a huge part. That's a huge piece of the gospel is that Jesus is going to come back and fix all of this. It's just as big of a piece as the need for grace, the need for the gospel, the need for Jesus to come. The problem of sin is answered in Jesus' coming. And and so I, I thought of all these different ways, and, and I could go on and on and on about this, but I won't. But I think a good illustration um, conveys what I what I mean. The people who I know, who I've encountered in ministry, who cannot stand talking about sin, who don't want to hear about it, are also the same people who struggle deeply with the thought of God really loving them really loving them, the people who are broken and not just not quite sure that God really loves them and really bought their salvation, and, and they struggle with the assurance of whether or not they are saved. It's those people who also want to just not hear about sin. It happens all, all the time. And conversely, the people who are okay with talking about their sin, who are open and vulnerable about it it and grieve over it, but still are okay admitting that they're... and they'll look into it and study it and see it in the Bible. Those are the people who deeply, deeply are confident in Christ's work on the cross. And here's why. When you start to understand your need for the gospel and you, you see it in scripture, you also have to see God's response to your sin and my sin and the world's sin. You you look at sin for long enough, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and darker and darker and darker. And if you're reading the Bible, you cannot miss that grace gets bigger and brighter and stronger and more mighty. That is the story of the Bible from beginning to end, is God looking at all the mess in the world and him being stronger. And so I just want to encourage you, if you are that person who is afraid to look into that dark corner of your heart. Step in. Walk with someone else into it. Don't avoid it, because we all know it's there. We all know it's there. But Christ is stronger. We we sang about it. We read about it. Death, where is your sting? It is removed. Walk in with that level of confidence. Um... But so I, I found an article that kind of helps us understand a little bit more about this sin, and it, and it talks about in four ways, kind of demographics uh, of people or, or groups. Um, so first, there's the millennial way, um, and even though I am painfully a millennial, this is pretty accurate. Uh, it says, we confess sometimes very publicly, but all too often as a way of cutting off criticisms or calls to Repentance. We've owned our mess, but our motive isn't genuine brokenness. It's an ironic way of demonstrating our righteousness through our willingness to appear broken. Think about about that. All right, then there's the sectarian way. It involves speaking of sin as a practice or feature of those people out there, the sinners. Like we're in church, right? No, the, the sinners need to confess and repent that's the sectarian way of thinking about it the the mainline or liberal way it says uh it's most mostly just at the horizontal level social injustice uh sexism racism oppression greed uh god is not the chief one who's offended And so it it just stays on a a horizontal level. Uh, Richard Niebuhr described this approach as this. Listen to this. A God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through a Christ without a cross. If, If there is no sin, there is no need for a Savior. If there's no need for a Savior, Christ did not need to come. He did not need to die. And so you see how quickly... Avoiding sin, walking out of sin, leaving sin behind, starts to dismantle the gospel. Uh, then there's the evangelical way, um, and it's just kind of the, the inverse of the mainline or liberal way. It says here we assume because sin is chiefly against God, vertical, he's not concerned with much else. And, and isn't that a complaint? Is Well, you evangelicals, you have your doctrine right, but you're just kind of a bunch of jerks. Like in that kind of how the outer world, at least a, a complaint lobbed, and so we forget that sin has a social context, and it impacts our neighbor greatly. Um, and so, so again, just I want to encourage you guys: pursue Scripture. Don't be afraid to dive into to head into sin, because we need to trust God with our own. Um, and I think everyone knows that something's wrong, right? So we can kind of set the sin conversation aside. Uh, David brought it up, so blame him, okay? Uh, but so we all know something's wrong. And so what do we do about it, right? If, if, that, if that thing, that need for grace is separating us from the source of life, what, what do we do to get reconnected to the source, author, sustainer of life who is God, Uh, And I I think, again, we could say, well, we we just need to repent of our sins and believe unto the Lord Jesus. And you just recite a verse in your head, and we leave it at that theoretical level, and we don't don't let it sink down. And this is where this psalm really comes to life, because David walks us through it. Look back at verse 3. It says, For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Isn't that an incredible verse? We, we could go through and study the Hebrew and talk about, well, is, it, is this literal? Was he silent or groaned? We, we don't need to do any of that. Every single person here knows exactly what David is talking about. That inner angst and turmoil whether it's you just intentionally did someone, did something to someone, or maybe it's just you realize something about yourself, how selfish you were in this moment, and you're sick about it, and it's just eating you up inside. It, it feels just like something in the lowest part of your stomach. That's what David feels. And so I, I don't know what it was that he noticed or did, or the trouble he was in, but his Bones, It felt like his bones were wasting away. And although he was silent, every part of him was groaning from the inside. We all have felt that. And then in verse 4, it says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Now I was going to make this big example right here about like opening the doors and turning the AC off and just waiting until, but of course it rained all morning. So it kind of ruined that example. But if you were outside for like 30 seconds this week, you know the feeling of the heat of the summer and how oppressive it is and just sweating from random places all over your body, that's And so think of the grace of God, his hand on you, the heavy, penetrating, pursuing, not going away hand of God. It's there. It's there. You can feel it. And David, you can almost watch him getting heavier and heavier and heavier until finally he snaps Finally, he snaps, and whether it was the pain of his sin or just remembering how good it is, that pursuit, that heavy pursuit of God was what drove him back, and that's grace. If we ever, ever, ever realize our sin, feel that weight, we can praise God for it. We can praise God, and listen, I know it feels awful, just like he's saying. David's not saying, it felt wonderful to have my bones wasting away and praise God that I feel this oppressive summer heat on my soul, and, and if God had a hand, it would likely be large, so that's probably a lot of ways. He's, he's not being fake here. That He probably suffered his anguish. Um, a, a commentator on the psalm said, uh, and, and I don't know if God was sending something to punish him for sin he did, or that, you know, this was just a consequence of the brokenness of the world. Um, and, and this summed it up very, very well. It says, suffering need not be a form of discipline for sin. So every time anything bad happens to you, you you shouldn't think, well, God's punishing me for something. That, that, that's not how God works. It, it's not that he would never, ever do that. But we see Job. That That's not true. But the commentator says, but adversity is always, always an occasion for the wise in heart to draw near to the Lord in prayer and find solace in him. And so that's where David is. He snaps and he lets go. And in verse 5, we see a shift. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you. So just, just picture, even if you have to close your eyes, picture that hand on on your shoulder or David's shoulder and finally just letting go and turning around and acknowledging, acknowledging my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. Now that is a scary place, right? That You, you, you have this thing, you know there's a penalty to it, you know it is wrong, you know that it ought to bring death and separation from God and you say, here it is, here it is. I, it's not worth me running and hiding. I'm wasting away. So, here, that ought to be a scary place, or you're not being serious about it. Because in that moment, you have to put all of your trust in God's response. And, and there must be a response. And, and if you were you, you would probably punish yourself for that response. I think that's why we, we like to forgive other people, because we're like, man, if I was in that, I would not want to be punished that way. Well, let's go easy on them. Right? But God's perfect. Every, and we want justice. We want a perfect right Judgment and justice for other people and other bad things, just, just not for ourselves. And so we bring this to God, and, and C.S. Lewis talks about this in such a great way. And I hope it connects with you, of just that idea of bringing our sin to God, bringing it into the light. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. And I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for the night and let me get to sleep. But I did not go to my mother, at least not until the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from the pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. I knew those dentists. I knew they would start fiddling around with all sorts of other teeth which had not yet begun to hurt. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. If you gave them an inch, they took an L. It's a little British for you. Um, Now, if I may put it this way, C.S. Lewis continues, our Lord is like the dentists. If you give him an inch, he will take an L. Dozens of people go to him to be cured of one particular sin, which they which they are ashamed, or which is obviously spoiling their daily life. Well, he will cure it, all right, but he will not stop there. That may be all you asked, but if once you call him... In, he will give you the full treatment. That is scary. Like, who wants to go to... I know there's somebody out here who likes going to the dentist. Don't raise your hand. We don't want to all judge you all at once. <laughs> but seriously, like, that's what it is. We're, we're opening our souls up and saying, okay, I I know that this... But it, it, it's not just fun and easy... And sometimes there are consequences, right? Real-life consequences. And so it's, it's often terrifying. But David, he continues. And sometimes it's better to have a personal story than just here's the thought you should believe. And so he says, I will, he says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And so he's out there. He should have been punished, right? He should have had consequences for whatever sin or transgression or iniquity that he committed. He should receive separation, but he doesn't. says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's God's response to him. We we see the process of this going on in David, and, and finally he's there before God. Here is my mess. Go ahead. I know I deserve it, and God forgives. And the, and the weight just comes off of his back. His bones are restored. And so in light of that, in light of David walking through this happening to him, he says, therefore... Verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And so what does that mean, prayer when you may be found? Um, I, I looked and looked and looked and tried to come to like a consensus and then I, and I thought, hey, this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter when it, this second part, at a time when you may be found. Because now... And this is something David would be jealous of all of us for. David would kill to have what we have. There is no time when God cannot be found. We are the temple. He had to walk to one. We're we're walking around as the presence of God is in us. And so there is no moment when God cannot be found, when we cannot turn, when we cannot say, Lord, here is my iniquity, deal with my heart, cleanse my soul. And so I wanted to start with the purpose, like what David wanted to walk away with. Not as that. I wanted to start with If we want to enjoy God's grace, we need to trust Him with our sin. But David started with sin. So that's the point right there. And it's just flipped. But if we want, if we really desire God's grace, we have to hand our sin to Him. We have to trust Him with it. And David is saying, He is trustworthy. He is trustworthy. I still doubt it, but he is trustworthy. And David's saying, go to him, go to him. And then we have to figure out, it do we want that grace? What is that grace? And I think, you know, we, we talk about it again at that theoretical level, right? And, and so I think one of the biggest pieces sometimes we miss, sometimes we don't consider all the way, is that we think grace is just being not punished, Right, Like we deserve punishment, we've done something wrong, even if we're like, okay, I, yes, I did this intentionally, I know that is wrong, I deserve the penalty for it, and I'm, I'm thankful that I have God's grace and I don't get punished. And that's not incorrect, but that's only half of grace. The other half is we get every goodness from God that we do not deserve. So, so it's not just, okay, you know what, I'm going to let that slide you know, it's not, a, it's not a speeding ticket that we just get a warning for. It's, hey, I, I got these get-out-of-jail-free cards. You want a couple of them now that I've caught you for speeding and I'm letting you go? Like, that's more of what the metaphor would be. It's not just getting out of something that we ought to be punished for. It's getting the rope, getting the inheritance, being welcomed into the house, being a son, being adopted or daughter, adopted. So it's, it's not that we just don't get punished, but we get every good thing of God given to us. It's so much greater. But so David, even to help convince us, he, he looks at this comparison, these two kind of worlds, two lives, and it's similar to Psalm 1 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. And so just, just look through verse 6 and, and 7, um, and then verse 9. He says, surely the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. There's protection, there's safety. You are a hiding place for me. David running and running and turning his back on God, and then now he has a place of safety and hiding, and uh, he's preserved from trouble, shouts of deliverance and rescue. And then God's promise of I will instruct you, I will teach you, I will give you a companion to be with in myself. I will give you steadfast love, faithful, never giving up, never turning my back on you, love. That's what you're getting. And and that's like a tree planted by streams of water. And then the other side, you can almost hear, not so are the wicked. But But here he says, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The, the two lives, the two paths, we, we weren't made to just be this simple beast that is only able to go where whatever controlling it wants it to go. But that, that is how sin impacts us. We may not think about that. I, I think, so I don't know it, who all in the room is a rebel. Like, who's a rebel at heart? It's me, I'm for sure. Okay. There's not, okay, come on. Who's, who, is, who is more rebellious than they are rule following? Yeah. Ken threw it up real fast. <laughs> all right. Yeah. And, and when I hear, oh, no, follow the rules. Nope. Nope. That's, you're trying to control me. No way. Rules are made to be broken. And, but I think all of us, we get this thought that, like, obedience to God is a killjoy, right? Like, the rebels want to test it, and, and maybe the rule followers are just scared to <laughs> disobey it or something. I don't know. Um, yeah, we have a lot more fun, but y'all live longer, I think. <laughs> But so I, I think we see obedience to God as this killjoy, it's something that just kind of draw, okay, well, I guess I'll have to follow what God wants for me, and yeah, I know, I know he knows best, but, it, but no, no one would see. So, so take like two dogs, right? Take like a mangy, wild dog eating out of a dumpster, like just roaming. You can't get near it because it's skittish. Nobody looks at that dog and says, oh, man, what a life that's a That's freedom right there. kind of wish I was like that dog, just no rule doesn't answer to anybody. and then you have like the dog that is able to run without a leash and like sits outside of coffee shops with maybe that's an East Nashville thing I just <laughs> I just outed myself there yeah, all right, so uh. But, uh, you know, the dog that eats, like, the bag of food that's in the small refrigerator at the grocery that has, like, a wolf on it, and it's, it's like, organic beef. That the, but, uh, you know, you see those dogs that are so well-behaved, so obedient, um, that, you know, they, they're the ones that get to go in the lake and, like, sit in the boat and just get to enjoy themselves. Nobody is saying, like, oh, gosh, the robotic slavery that that dog exists in, that's awful. It must be terrible being that. no. They just think, what a good dog. Oh man, that, what a great life. Cared for, loved, protected, always happy, always living in a, it, it, that dog is free. This dog is not free. That dog can, can do everything that that, that that it wants to. And so it's the same with us. We were not made to just do whatever we want and have absolutely no, rules, no guidelines, God, and and where it comes from and the core of sin is believing the lie that if you obey God, you're going to be less of yourself. He's going to hold out on you. You're missing out. If you listen to God, if you obey him, if you really believe what he says, it's not going to be best for you. You're going to be more if you disobey. You're gonna be able to take more and get more and have more if you disobey. And what happens is that Adam and Eve, when they bought into that lie, they lost it all. And that, that's what we continually buy into. Is that if, if, we, if we disobey, maybe we'll get something out of it. But we weren't made for that. We were not made to live in that. That is what David or yeah, what David wants us to see. Real freedom, real life, real joy and grace comes from continually turning to God. And, and thank goodness our obedience is not marked with, with just following his perfect law. The point of the law is to make us realize that we need to repent and turn to him and let him do the work. So it's not even about following a bunch of rules. It's, hey, just keep coming back home. Keep coming to me. That is how we clean this up. And so I, I didn't want to leave us with without like practical pieces that we can take away. Okay. And, and so if, if you want to enjoy God's grace, we need to trust Him with our sin. Hopefully, you don't want the alternative. Hopefully, you're not longing to be the the horse or the donkey just turned and not making any decisions for itself, or the wild dog living on its own. Um, but practically, day-to-day, what it looks like, um, three things you can do. Three things that I think help bring this process along of, of walking through confession, walking through repentance. And it's, so the first one is make a practice of regularly considering your sin and regularly considering the gospel. Just make a habit of preaching that to yourself. If you notice something come up, if you feel that hand of God, think through why you, why am I pursuing this? Why do I keep buying into that? I know that it is not true. I know that what I'm seeking is not going to make me happy or make me satisfied. With, and so, Lord, help me see just how much you're willing to come in and sacrifice for me so that I am satisfied. So you have to continually individually do it. And then second, find someone you can share your sin with that makes continual repentance normal and safe. And so that's not Facebook, all right? Yeah, nobody needs any more sin on Facebook, okay? But find someone, so if that's not a spouse, which it ought to be, but also find a close friend where you the point of your relationship at times is to help you turn back to God, help you cleanse out your soul so that you can live free and can live in communion with God. And third, the more you repent, no, the more that you will notice your sin, but you'll notice grace even more. Grace is the safety net that gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, no matter how afraid of sin that you are, no matter how afraid of how big it gets. Grace gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so I hope that David's example here helps you see confession and repentance in in another light, in a different way, and it encourages you to actually do it um, but so in, in every sermon that I that I write out, I write the whole thing out. And I write at the very top what's the purpose. And, and so the purpose for this sermon that I just know in the back of my head that keeps me focused is I, I hope that people see the joy of repentance. right? I wanted to highlight that for us, for myself, for y'all, for all of us. I wanted to highlight the joy of repentance. And I still think that there's a fear in it. Maybe because of how we we grew up, maybe because what someone has done to us when we've been vulnerable around them, when we've exposed or let down our guard, maybe we've been hurt, and I think we all still fear just a little bit, maybe a lot, but just a little bit, how God will respond to us. And so I I wonder, I know sometimes I struggle with, well, what is God going to say? That's one of the biggest fear of marriages, right? Like if I show that person who I really am, are they going to love me? I think that is one of the deepest questions that all of us have. If I show God really how dark this is, will he still love and accept me? And let me just read you. Just let this kind of wash over you, especially if you struggle with that. Uh, This is how God approaches us. This is how he responds to us when we show him how deep and dark and messy we are. This is Jesus speaking. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 and go after that one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And if she, the woman, loses one coin, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? when she's found it, she calls her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. And then finally, the response of a father from a prodigal son walking away, intentionally walking away. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him and said The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy. But the father said, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That's God's response to us turning to him in repentance. It's not disappointment. It's not shame. It's not guilt. It's rejoicing. It's glad rejoicing. And David knows this. And he ends the psalm this way. It says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That is how we should view and think of confession and repentance. God, the whole time, is saying, Come to me and I will give you joy. Blessed is the one.